Our scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received as just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the season of uh, Advent, and the word Advent comes, uh, basically, it, it talks about anticipation. It means the coming of Jesus Christ. And what we do during Advent is to reflect on the character of Jesus, more on the character of Jesus, more on what he has done. And so we're reflecting on his beauty and his grace and his kindness. We're reflecting on the love of Jesus, the kindness, the wisdom of Christ. Um, that's going to shape us. It can shape us today. It's going to shape us again and again. And we're doing this right now through the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians who are living in the city, in the urban parts of the city, who are suffering, marginalized because of their faith. And it addresses the question, because it's about suffering, it addresses the question, if God is so committed to our joy, if God is so committed to our glory, if he loves us so much, then why is life so hard? Why is life so difficult? And Hebrews answers this question by saying that life is a race. That's how you see, as we get to the end of the book of Hebrews, life is a journey, it's a race. And, uh, and the author explains this in movements throughout the book. In three or four major movements, the author is going to lay this out. Now, um, we did something kind of weird. If you've been attending Metro Presbyterian Church, we've been doing a little, something a little bit weird. We started uh, with Hebrews chapter 11. We did a whole series on Hebrews 11. And then we kind of rounded out the entire book. We went into chapter 12 and 13. And now we're going back to the beginning. And we're going to go through the book really all the way through. We began Advent with the climax of the entire book in Hebrews chapter 12. The author starts to explain what suffering is. He says it's training. He says it's discipline. It's going to train you and challenge you in your view of life. And he concludes and he says that's why you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. Stay focused. That's the key. Now we're going to get into what that really means. We're going to eventually come back to that. But today we go all the way back to the beginning, chapter 1. And the author says, today, God has spoken to us through his son. He's spoken to us through Jesus. In other words, Jesus Christ is the final voice of God. Jesus Christ is the final word of God. What does that mean? We're going to learn three things today. The final word, what is that? One, the word is non-negotiable. Two, that means the word is truth. And lastly, then the word is going to shape us. It's transforming Jesus as God's word is non-negotiable, it's truth, and it's going to shape us. It's going to transform our lives. 
First, the word is non-negotiable. Verses 1 to 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets at many times in various ways. Uh, but why does he do that? That's what he says. Uh, the text says, because verse 3, the sun is the exact representation of his being. The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. The Greek word here for representation is the same word that we have for the word character. In other words, God is speaking to us through Jesus. That's the same as God speaking directly to us. He is the exact character of God's being. Now think about this. Today, when you speak, speak to us to one another throughout the day, how do you do that? You do that through texting. You do it through email. You do it through IMs and chats. Uh, but those things are easily misunderstood. It's easy to misunderstand uh, a text. It's easy to misunderstand an email. The tone, everything is kind of said wrong sometimes. It's said quickly and impulsively. It's hard to understand IMs. Or if it gets really serious, you may have to send somebody to represent you to relay a message. That's called an attorney, a lawyer. But once in a while, things are so broken. Things are so broken. And things are so complex that a text is not enough. An email is not going to be enough. And I, it's definitely not I am. In fact, and if you send an attorney, it's going to get the wrong message across because it's going to set a different type of tone. So you say, you know what, I'm not going to send a messenger to relay this message. I'm not going to send an email. I'm not going to send a text. I'm going to go directly. And I'm going to speak to this person directly. When you do that, what are you saying? You're saying, what I have to say is so important. And this person that I'm speaking to is so important to me that I need to make sure that my message, my intent, my tone is received in the exact way that I'm conveying it. In other words, I want to have a relationship with this person. I want to preserve a relationship with this person. This relationship is broken. I want to fix this relationship. I want a relationship with this person. In that same vein, in that same way, God speaks us. God speaks to us through his son. And that means he's speaking to us directly, not just through a prophet, not just through his written law, not just through his word, even though those, those are all valid. The prophets were like God's prosecuting attorneys, so, but he's not going to just send his attorney to us. Why? Because this is a personal God. God is personal. This is God being personal. He's speaking to us. He's coming in person, Christmas, the meaning of Christmas is what? Access. The restoration of access to God. And when Jesus Christ came, he didn't come with guards. He didn't come with swords. He didn't come in a throne with sentinels in front of him. He was born as a baby in a manger without any shelter. Without, he was completely vulnerable. No defense. And he wasn't just giving us a word, right? Like each of the prophets. But he was giving us the final word. What he says is final. Now the text says, verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets in various ways. The Greek phrase, various ways, is polytropos. It means piecemeal. So I'm going to put this together. The author is saying that in the past, God spoke through many prophets, many people, in piecemeal over time. Over many, over many times, in piecemeal through these people, through representatives. But now, we get the entire message at once through Jesus. Before various ways, many times, 
Now it's one way. And the writer says, in these last days, he's spoken to us. The last days is from the time that the book of Hebrews was written all the way to the present, to the edge of time, for all time. What that means is the, the author is saying is that from now until the end of time, there is no fuller, more final, more exact expression of God than Jesus. Now we're going to put this all together. God has chosen, God desires to speak with his people. He desires to relate with us, engage with us. He desires to be personal. That's incredibly beautiful. That's remarkable, actually. That's a miracle. That's the miracle of Christmas. But it's also incredibly impossible, incredibly difficult. Why? And here's the rub. Because the final word, that's Jesus' character. That's Jesus' work. The final word, God spoken through Jesus. Why is that difficult? It's because you really can't have a true relationship with anybody unless you're willing to accept that person's non-negotiables. The closer you get with somebody, you have to, you come more and more in touch with that person's core values, that person's deepest non-negotiables. What Tim Keller, he's my favorite preacher, Tim Keller calls these things our finalities. The more intimate you get with somebody, you have to accept their finalities. Everyone's got finalities. Everybody, whether, no matter how open you are, you have things in your life that are non-negotiable in your life. To become intimate with you, to get through the gate of intimacy with you, what you're saying is you have to accept my non-negotiables in life. Now, if that's the way it is with all of us here in this room, how much more is that going to be with God? That's how it is with God. I'm going to unpack this. Most people in this room, if you're not married, you want to be married. Because marriage gives you this wonderful, intimate, loving, romantic relationship. And then you get married. And when you get married, what do you find out? Is it always wonderful? Is it always intimate? Is it always romantic? Soon enough, you're going to find out that that other person contradicts you. It's a shocker for some of us. That, uh, That person contradicts us. That person defies our logic. That person defies our senses. That person's going to say things you don't want to hear. And then they're going to say, and that's how it is. That's just how it goes. And so you figure, okay, I want to get close with this person. Maybe I can compromise. Maybe I can negotiate with this person. Until you realize that there are some things that that other person is not going to be willing to negotiate. Hands down, not willing to compromise at all. Not going to negotiate with you. A big part of marital counseling, marriage counseling in general is what? Helping the person and that person's spouse to figure out, to realize what things are negotiable and what things are final. What's their final word? I remember a good friend of mine when I was in college came to me and said, I need you to meet this person. And I'm trying to figure out, is a relationship going to happen between us? Is this person fit for me? How, how's, how am I going to know that this is going to work out for me? How do you know? And so I just asked, well, what are some values that you have that are non-negotiable? And what are some values that that person has that are non-negotiable for them? Why do I ask that? Because in a way, you, every one of us here, are the sum of the values that we're not willing to negotiate. The things that are core to us, the things that are our motivational centers. And unless you are willing to accept each other's non-negotiables, that relationship is doomed to fail. It's not going to work out. You will not be able to get intimate with them, not deeply. You will not be able to get personal with them. You're not going to be willing to let that person into your life. Do you see that? Either you have to adjust or they have to adjust. 
And at the same time, you need that. You need that in your life. You know why? Because of a relationship where a person's always in agreement with you, never argues with you, never contradicts you, is never going to change you, is never going to shape you, is never going to transform you. Do you understand that? Once you take away that person's ability or that person's non-negotiables in life, and that person's always in agreement with you with everything that you want, everything that you do, that's not a real relationship. That's never going to be a real relationship. Think about this. If you don't take the Bible as God speaking to you, and you only take parts of the Bible that you like, and you challenge and contradict the things that, the, that you don't like about God in the Bible, then how is your version of God ever going to challenge you? How's your version of God then? How's that version of God, a God that where you've taken away all the things you don't like, how is that view of God ever going to shape you? Because maybe you don't really have a real God there. Do you understand? And that kind of God's never going to tell you what's really wrong with you, first of all. But that person, that kind of God is never going to be able to give you hope, real hope. That kind of God will never be able to give you real comfort when you're suffering, do you see? You're never going to have an accurate view of life. You're never going to have an accurate view of your self-image. You're never going to have an accurate view of God unless you're willing to accept the authority of the Word of God. That some things are just absolute. That some things are non-negotiable. You can't have a personal relationship with him. You just can't. If that's the way it is with one of us here, with each other here, how much more is that going to be with God? Jesus Christ is the final word of God. Non-negotiable. But at the same time, it's incredible because he's personal. He's a person. He's real. He can be intimate with you, but also He's incredibly disturbing because he's a person. He's going to contradict you. He's going to challenge you. He's going to fight with you. He's going to argue with you. In fact, when you start to argue with God in Jesus, that's when he becomes a person to you. That's when you're actually getting intimate. You can't get close to someone until you've had those arguments. So the very nature of having those contradictions in your life, the challenges in your life, the arguments that you have with God because of the Bible, that means that Jesus is becoming more intimate with you. And he is personal. And he is real. And he may have non-negotiables. But he is the exact expression of God. And that means he is loving. And he's gracious. And he's compassionate. And he's good. And he's kind. Do you see that? It also means that the final word is truth. Verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. You know what that means? In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were rescued from slavery out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, how were they led? At night, it was by a pillar of fire, and at day, a radiant cloud, a radiant glory cloud, the theophanic presence of God that led the Israelites through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where they received the law, the written word, where the glory cloud of God came down. There was thunder, there was lightning, there was a storm, there was darkness, there was gloom. Later on, in the Old Testament, you have the dedication of the temple. The glory cloud comes down into the temple. And everyone falls to the ground. Why? Because it's the glory of God. 
It's the expression of who God is, the glory of God in a form that expresses his brilliance, all of his beauty, all of his power, the weight of his substance. That's what glory is, the weight of his substance, his kavod glory. In 1 Samuel, you have when the, when the ark, that represents the God, God's presence, the ark of the covenant, it was taken into battle. And the Israelite, the Israel lost the ark. They lost the battle, they lost the ark, and God's glory presence was gone. It said that, um, that a woman there, her husband had died, his father-in-law had died, Phineas, Phineas's wife. She's in labor. She's about to give birth. The glory cloud of God disappears, departs from her, departs from Israel. And so she names her son Ichabod, Ikavod. The glory of the Lord has departed. The author is saying here that God, that glory cloud, that glory presence of God is now with us in Jesus. The radiance of God's glory is with us. Has condescended, has come down and become a human being. And so God is personal. But that is the exact and as a result, the ultimate expression of God's glory in a human being. Nothing greater. You know what that means? How do you trust God? The author says here, you've got to look to Jesus. Over and over and over again, you see in the book of Hebrews, look to Jesus. And later on, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at the character of Jesus. Look at the work of Jesus, his brilliance. He says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He's talking about the glory cloud. That is me, this brilliance, his wisdom, his power. But he's so personal. And as a result, he feels pain. And he hurts. And he weeps. And he gets angry for his people. And he bleeds. And he dies. And he identifies with the poor. And he identifies with people who've been persecuted. And he identifies with people who are marginalized and outcast. That's Jesus. So if you feel left out, sometimes we feel ugly inside or outside. And you're filled with self-loathing. And you feel humiliated at times. Look to Christ because no one, there's no one greater who understands no one like Jesus Christ. If you've ever spent some time with somebody uh, that you really respect, if you spend time with somebody that you really respect because they're just so much more wise than you are and so much more confident than you are and so much more noble than you are and they're resilient and they have a certain kind of kindness, a certain kind of wisdom, and, and you're just hanging with them, those good qualities, it shapes you. It starts to make you question how you live your own life. You know, how you look at how they deal with people. You look at how you watch how they carry themselves, how they express things, how they do certain things. You're never the same. When you, the more you hang with that type of person, you're never the same. It's as if their brightness and their brilliance and their wisdom, their beauty passes into you almost. But the glory of God, you can't even look at the glory of God. You couldn't even touch you couldn't come close because the glory would destroy you. It was so bright. You take that brightness, now magnify it and intensify it to a degree you cannot fathom, you can't imagine. That's the glory of God. That's the brilliant, beautiful, powerful, all-consuming glory of God. That's why everybody fell to the ground. The glory cloud would come into the temple, everyone falls to the ground. That's why they did that. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the, the royal glory presence of God. He falls to the ground. He says, I am ruined. Woe is me. 
the author says, but here, God's glory, that brilliance, that beauty, that power becomes personal, relates to you, engages with you. That's the meaning of Christmas. You have access and that beauty can pass into you. You can have it. You can receive it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, actually this passage is, uh, I believe it was used in my wedding day. To this day, when Moses was read, a veil covers our hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Then the author says, it's written in your uh, word of encouragement, and we who with veiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. You know what that means? Before, before when you heard God speak, when, when Moses was read, there was a veil. There was a separation. There was a distance because it's consuming. There was, there was gloom and awe. There was a falling down. But we are, our faces, we are unveiled. We are unveiled, and we reflect the Lord's glory, and we're being transformed. We're being shaped into his glory. That glory that, that, that would consume us has now come in, and it's personal, you see? It can shape us. If you want to know the truth about who you really are, we don't like to hear the truth about who we really are, but if you want to know the real truth about who you really are, Jesus brings the ultimate truth. But think about this. If you, imagine if you found all the truth about who you are all in one shot, what would happen? That's the brilliance. That's the, that's the consuming presence. That's the consuming holiness. That's the consuming glory, you see. It would depress you. You wouldn't be able to bear it. It would destroy you. It would consume you. They say that our millennial generation today struggles with criticism. They don't like to hear criticism. Right? Uh, and that's why they jump from job to job. That's why they jump from boyfriend to boy, you know, boyfriend to boyfriend, girlfriend to girlfriend, church to church, because they just can't deal with criticism in their lives. When they hear something, they just can't bear it. Because they're just, there's a this desire for approval, this desire for an intimacy that comes with this approval and, and, and love and affirmation. And so they can't deal with the non negotiables and they can't deal with the finalities and they can't deal with truth, truth about who they are. Um, Jesus brings truth, and it's hard to bear. It would consume us. Jesus is reality. He brings reality, the true reality of reality, the true reality of who you are. He brings truth because he is truth, because he is true reality himself, and yet he's so personal, and he's so relatable, and he's so loving, and there's acceptance there. You know, that acceptance that you're looking for in your job, that acceptance that you're looking for in your boyfriend or in your girlfriend, in your church, you can only find it in Christ. He is the ultimate expression of it. That's what we're constantly looking for. He is the ultimate expression, and he's so kind, and he's so personal, and he just, you receive it. By grace, you receive it. You don't earn it. We receive it. You receive truth on one hand, and if that's all you receive, it will consume you. But then there's the kindness and love of God. On one hand, the author here is saying that Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of truth, the ultimate expression of reality, the ultimate expression of God. So even if one claim that Jesus made through all the Gospels, if even one claim was false, you should reject everything that he says. But if what he's saying about himself is true, 
then we need to take it all in. You need to take it all in, all the brilliance. Then you receive the brilliance and the beauty and the forgiveness, you see. The word is true. He is truth. He is personal, and he can shape everything. And so we have the finalities of who Jesus is, the non-negotiables of who Jesus is. And you have uh, the truth and the reality that Jesus brings, the truth of who he is. How does that shape us? The word is transforming, it's shaping. Verse 3, after he, pure, after he provided the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You know what that means? It means Jesus Christ is the final word. He's the final prophet. He's the final expression of God's character. He's the final expression of God's holiness. Because he's holy, because he's pure, in his act of sacrifice, in his work, in his purification of our sins, he acts as the perfect and ultimate high priest. You know what that means? Uh, when he provided the purification of sins, he sat down. In the Old Testament, the high priest, when he would perform his high priestly duty, he never sat down. He would never sit down. And the reason why is because to sit down means whenever you're working and you're done your work, what do you do? You sit down. The high priest never sat down because the work was never finished. Even he himself is in sin. Even he himself had to be ceremonially cleansed. It was a provisional work. The high priest's work was never finished because it was provisional. It pointed to a greater high priest to come. Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That means the work is done. His work is finished. On the cross, his blood was spilled. The penalty of sin had to be paid. Why? Because God is a just God. And Jesus Christ paid the penalty. But God is a merciful God because he made a way for our sins to be paid. He made a way for our sins to be paid without consuming us so that when the glory presence of God is near, it would fill us, we receive it by grace, and we reflect his ever-increasing glory. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. To die. That means the debt is paid. It's a Greek word. It means the debt is paid. It was a financial phrase, a financial word that means the payment, the transaction has been made once for all. And so he says, it's over. I did it. It's paid. It's finished. And so he sat down. Look at the mercy of God. Look at the love of God. Look at the perfect holiness of God that all-consuming holiness, and yet look at the sacrifice of God. That's his beauty. That is his beauty. And that means that Jesus Christ adjusted. We talked about the non-negotiables. Jesus Christ adjusted to our non-negotiable. You know, what's the, one, what's the one thing in our lives that we can't change on our own? It's our sinfulness. The one thing that we hold as a non-negotiable in our life, in order for... God, to become intimate with us, he would have to take in our sin. He would have to take our sin. No matter how hard we try, we can't change our sinfulness. And so the only way for a holy God to relate to us in his perfect righteousness, he adjusts. He adjusts. So when Jesus Christ was born in a manger, 
When he entered the world and emptied himself, Philippians 2 says he emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his brilliance. And he became vulnerable all the way to the cross. That's God adjusting. That's Jesus adjusting. That's God adjusting. And on the cross, this final word, this final word was silenced. He became silent. All his life, Jesus is one with God. He says, I and the Father are one. He talks with God. He communes with God. He prays to God. But on the cross, there's silence. He cries out to the Father. He cries out to the Father. This is his center. This is his motivational center in his life. His, the center of his worship. And there's silence. There's no response. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, the glory of the Lord has departed from me. I am the true Ichabod. Ichabod. No glory. That means there's no brilliance in my life. The brilliance has departed from me. The beauty has departed from me. The warmth of God has departed from me. The presence of God has departed from me. And I'm lost. And there's darkness. And there's silence. And as a result, there's separation. And there's distance. That's what hell is. Complete separation from God. So he's saying, I'm suffering hell on the cross. There's a disintegration in his life. The father disintegrated from the son. Complete distance there. No more intimacy. Jesus Christ lost a relationship with the Father. Why? So that we could have access. Jesus Christ was disintegrated from the Father. Why? So that we could be reconciled to the Father. Jesus Christ lost intimacy with the Father. Why? So that we could have intimacy with the Father. Jesus Christ was consumed by the brilliant wrath, by the brilliant power of God. Why? so that we could have the beauty of God, so that we could have the love of God, so that the glory presence of God can enter in and we would live. We would grow in ever-increasing glory into his likeness. Do you see that? That's the miracle of Christmas. That's the final message of Jesus. That's it, the gospel. It is finished. He sat down after the purification from sins. Now, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 shows us something very, very practical. It's almost like an application, something very, very practical. First, the author says, pay careful attention to the message that you've heard. What's that message? It's what we just talked about. Jesus Christ, the gospel, the final word, the final message of God. But notice he says, pay careful attention so you do not drift away, so you don't drift away. That word attention is actually kind of translated weakly because the word literally means in Greek, obsession. Pay careful obsession. The phrase more careful means furious, furiously. So if you kind of put it together, what he's saying is, with the focus of someone who's obsessed, be furiously obsessed with this message, with this gospel. You know what that means? It means unless you take the gospel and obsess on it, when you obsess, what do you do? If you're obsessed, that means you can't stop thinking about this. That means it affects every aspect of your day. That means when you're sitting there and thinking about work, you're thinking about the gospel. That means when you're sitting there and thinking about your love life, you're thinking about the gospel. That means when you're sitting there thinking about that argument, that person that you haven't reconciled with, you're thinking about the gospel. That means that you have friends and parents that have hurt you over the years and those things kind of cascade in your life, corroding you, destroying you, eating away at you. You take the gospel, you plug it in there and you let it go deep. And you let it resolve things. You let it heal you. 
You're struggling with guilt, and that guilt has persisted over the course of years in your life. You let the gospel heal that because it is finished. It is final. There's nothing more you need to do. There's nothing more you can do. It is final. You take the gospel, you plant it into your job. You know what that does? That ends the striving. That ends the proving yourself. It ends the working for approval. You know why? Because the ultimate approval, the access, the intimacy, the one that you've been looking for that no job will ever be able to fulfill, you have it. That intimacy that you want from your children, that love, the doting, because you just so much want their love back and you want them to grow and flourish, it won't devastate you when your children go awry. It won't devastate you when your children get damaged, you see. It won't devastate you. Some of us put our lives into certain things. We get obsessed with those things. It could be a sports, uh, it could be a sport, it could be your job, your career. In a big city like Philadelphia, it's your job, it's your career, it's your love life, right? It's your money, it's your wealth. You take the gospel, you plug it in. You know why the tithe exists in the worship? Because it's an act of liberation and it's an act of dependence as well. You're depending now on Christ, not your money to save, not your wealth to heal you. You see that? The author says, pay careful attention, fiercely obsessed with the gospel. Make it the center of everything you do. Verse 2, he says, for if the message is spoken, the message spoken by angels, if that old message that came before Jesus was binding. What's that old message? The law. If that was binding and every violation and disobedience that you receive, receive just, just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? In other words, what he's saying is, if you neglect the law, that's disastrous. It's got consequences. But how much more disastrous, how many more eternal consequences will there be if you ignore the gospel, so great a salvation. If you ignore the fact that you are saved, not because you obeyed, but because Jesus obeyed, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, the author says, don't neglect this. Don't ignore this ever. And so when you're working for the affirmation of your boss, if you're working for that salary, that promotion, because that means affirmation. That means I'm being affirmed. When your boss criticizes you, when your spouse criticizes you, when your friend is trying to speak into you, when someone in the church is colliding with you to some degree. Remember, D.A. Carson says the church is full of natural enemies. That means that right next to you, that person would never have been your friend if it wasn't for you being drawn into the church. You never would, that person would never be your friend. Some of you have nobody sitting next to you, right? That person would never be your friend. Look over. Never be your friend. You'd never be, you never call that person a brother or a sister lest the gospel enter into your life. That person's, that person's going to speak into you. If that person's speaking into you and you're sitting there and you're saying, man, I, if, you, if you are doing well in your life, you're going to feel good. That's going to create a pride and an arrogance, and that's going to corrode you and destroy you. And if you're doing terrible, it's going to throw you into despair, and it's going to throw you into anger and bitterness and jealousy. And whether you succeed or you fail, if you live based on what you do and who you are, it's always going to make you anxious. You know why? Because you're being consumed. That's why. 
you're being consumed. If you're working hard to get the love of that one person in your life, you need intimacy, you need access. You know what you're doing? You're, sacrifice, you're gonna sacrifice your non-negotiables to get there eventually. If you want, depending on the degree that you want that person in your life, you're gonna sacrifice your non-negotiables, your values, maybe even your purity. You know what you're doing? You're being consumed, you see. Even in the church, right now, there are people thinking, you know, I grew up in the church. If I just live a good life, if I just obey, I will be saved. So you work hard. There's a lot of hard work. But you know what you're doing? You're ignoring the great salvation, the gospel, and you're drifting. He says, be careful. Be furiously obsessed lest you drift. You know what happens when you drift? You just let, you set a, sh- a, sip, a ship at sail and it just drifts you know you think oh, you just turn off the engine you're gonna stop nothing changes it just drifts you let it go an hour you're in a completely different place imagine your life drifting for years on end you're just drifting it's never gonna shape your life the gospel will never shape your life that way there'll be disastrous consequences that way even if you are successful you're going to be consumed with pride and anxiety and arrogance and anger and always with insecurity. Jesus says to us here, pay careful attention to the gospel. On one hand, it's the holiness of God. That's going to humble you. Nothing humbles us like the non-negotiables of God and his character. And because of our sin and because of those non-negotiables, we deserve to be consumed. We are being consumed because of our non-negotiables. But on the other hand, when you see how obsessed Jesus was with our salvation, he did not ignore it. That he was consumed for us so that we can fix our eyes on him. You will be furiously obsessed with him. It will shape your life. When you see how obsessed he was with you, you will become obsessed with him. You will become obsessed with the gospel. It will melt your heart into an obedience that will last. That's what's going to shape your life. It's going to transform your life. Then you're going to be transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory. Let's pray.